Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. I'm joined as always uh, by Martin. Hello, Martin. How are you doing? Hello, Alex. My cheery hello there. I went for. Thanks. And uh, <laughs> I'm Alex, as you've mentioned. Uh, <laughs> and yes, on this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about a few things. Uh, first of all, not so much one news topic, but rather a, a collection of news topics around PLM or product life cycle management. Uh, then later we're joined by Martine Mellis, who's just joined the ATS Global Family as Chief Commercial Officer. Uh, and then we're going to have a look at IoT and IIoT, or the Internet of Things and the Industrial Internet of Things. Yeah, well, we've talked about the Industrial Internet of Things and things like that on, on several podcasts and kind of touched on it, but never... Mm particularly talked about it so um, we thought it was about time we circled round and uh, addressed the issue time for a deep dive well deepish <laughs> a shallow dive <laughs> good stuff so yeah to, to begin with the news product lifestyle or product life cycle management i'll get it right for sure uh is as i understand it um if you take for example Nike making a pair of trainers. They're directly responsible for getting those materials, turning them into a pair of trainers, and shipping them. Mm. But when you talk about PLM, it would cover a broader range on either side of that. So it's not just sourcing the materials, but where those materials come from, what they are, and then beyond through uh, the sale of those items into the use of those items and the eventual death of those items mm. as well so it's it really covers the entire lifespan of a product not just yeah. what one company's involvement is yeah and the i think the news stories you were pointing at was the recycling of some battery uh, mm -hmm. capability um and and it does leak leak into economics as well when we start to talk about that because we talk about direct cost of things so direct cost of making any product um, is really kind of what businesses focus on today. They look at, okay, how can I get this stuff from my supply chain? So they first of all think of a, a concept, if it's a new product or mm -hmm. um, upgrading of an existing product, they'll need to go through that kind of conceptual design, thinking of the requirements. But there are, those requirements don't always bridge into the um, how that product's going to be serviced, how that product's going to be disposed of mm. um, there are aspects of it that come into it but um it's 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 not the core focus of it and then when we start to talk about sustainability um and the economic impact of whatever we do and, and you know having that kind of footprint within the business we also have to consider the the indirect costs of everything that that goes in there and that that aspect of it is definitely not considered you know um and, and that's kind of when we're talking about uh, global warming or things like this. They're the indirect consequences of a lot of our actions. And we talked about it a little while back about the steel production. Mm. We could come up with a conceptual design for a new bit of steel product. We can come up with 3D models that, uh, that utilize that kind of elasticity and strength that steel has. We could build prototypes and we could then create mass production volumes of those things um 
but we don't look at that kind of what else is a byproduct of that and what's the cost implication of producing those products and i think you know battery technology as we've also talked about before is is a big part of the future of electrification um yeah and how we recycle batteries and who pays for the recycling of the battery is where we bridge into that kind of economic um, gap between the product's life cycle and who ends up paying for that. Is it the consumer when they purchase it? Is it the um, public through their taxation systems and things like mm. that? So some so, so very uh, aligned um, terminology, if you like, between what if we were really talking about product life cycle, um, and we'll probably do a session on this on the tech spot as well. So there are applications called product life cycle management systems, PLM systems, but um, we're not talking about PLM system per se. We're really talking about the yeah the life cycle of products in its in its more um, richer form. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's an area that if we're going to get that kind of um, sustainability within anything we do, we've got to start considering both the direct costs um, that we don't consider at the moment and the impact of those indirect costs. Mm. We would start to see, I think, a truer reflection of the true cost of everything, um, including how things get subsidised as well, which is a also quite a big subject on its own. Yeah, because I mean, I'm taking, for example, as you said, this came into our minds because Birmingham University, amongst others, have started this new lithium-ion battery yeah. recycling facility. Lots of money being put into it. Very um, good environmental cause. But if you think about it in terms of the product, like product life cycle, then where does the responsibility fall? Because if you think if you're a, a, a business that produces something that uses a lithium ion battery that can potentially be recycled, is it your responsibility to do it or just know the fact that by producing it, it can be recycled and then it's passed on to the end user? Or like you say, is it passed on to the government to do it? Or, or does the person who's producing that product, um, are they off the hook, as it were, just mm. knowing that it can be recycled, or is it part of their responsibility in producing the product to make sure it is recycled? Yeah, and if we upscale that in a couple of terms, you look at nuclear power generation. You know, mm. it's like you build the nuclear power station, great. Who pays for decommissioning of it? Yeah, you know, and the uh, other news story that we were looking at was the um, Airbus revealing their uh, the emissions. Um, for their, their their planes they're selling. So, you know, the new new Airbus planes have got some really energy efficient engines on them and things like this, but they hadn't ever really told or calculated what mm. the real impact of running those um, aircraft is. Um, and it is back to, you know, not trying to be secretive about this. This is really about understanding the problems we're looking to solve um, and I think this is where Gavin was talking the other day about that kind of open data approach about this. Until we measure things, we can't solve them, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. The Airbus story was um, showed you just how much CO2 a single plane over its life cycle or lifetime um, emits. Um, but in the same regard, 
we've seen there's not many planes flying at the moment and we're still um, increasing the amount of CO2 going out in the world. So mm. it's, it's, a, it's a problem that needs to be resolved. Um, and there are some programs looking at doing that, um, including one in the UK called uh, Fly Zero, which is really looking about the zero carbon impacts of um, the aviation industry. Is that uh, is that looking at minimizing air flight then, or is it offsetting the carbon costs? So you have, because um, I know a lot of carbon neutral um, approaches is not so much minimizing the amount of carbon that's put out, but maximizing the amount of carbon reduction you do elsewhere. Um, well, I tell you what would be a good idea. You know, we, we had Kelt, Katie Milner on the uh, podcast, and she's now one of the people heading up that um that initiative so maybe we try and get her on the on a podcast to talk specifically about that subject mm. we'll we'll book that in for sure <laughs> <laughs> teaser teaser fantastic stuff well yeah i mean it's it's fascinating is there anything else we should uh we should touch on here because obviously i mean we have had a very carbon neutral focus for the last few weeks um i know it's a big issue yeah, and that's why it grows and grows, doesn't it? When you look at every everything that we do and the way the economic models are set up, um, it just shows you how much of it is 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 uh, unmeasured at the moment. Um, <clears throat> and like I said, as as Gavin was saying, if you have this kind of um, open energy uh, platform, where or or as you kind of referred to this marketplace of of the, to to facilitate that kind of concept then then things become um you can create a market from these types of things which is really what's desperately needed is is to be able to understand the challenge but also why not create a market because we love you know market economy so um mm -hmm. um interesting to see how those those things go hand in hand because yeah when we talk about battery or or hydrogen fuel cells or uh, whatever it is, whatever that energy storage system is for uh, whatever we're trying to achieve, whether that's um, delivering parcels to your door or, or flying planes in the future. Um, yeah, these are, the, these are the challenges. And these challenges are, you know, they are being looked at and addressed at a level. Um, it's just how quick can we make those changes occur? Um, yeah, and I guess it's a bit of a carrot and a stick situation, isn't it? We're, as you say, we're pretty much addicted to the market. So you have to have, if we don't do this, climate change, but also this is how you can benefit from it if you are involved. And things like Gavin's open data approach might seem terrifying to big business, but actually in the long run could be financially beneficial. Yeah, well, as well as, yeah. As it well creates as, a whole new market, you know. Yeah. Capitalism loves a whole new market. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's where the uh, some of the subsidies come into it because you, there's quite a big argument about coal generation and things like this. Once again, <clears throat> very difficult to measure, but there are some reports out at the moment around the true impact of coal generation. And power generation and if you take those subsidies that happen to allow for coal to even function 
um, you know, is hot in the news at the moment, isn't it, in the UK, where the government have approved a coal um, coal mine um, recently. And now there's a bit of movement there to block it um, because basically of all the issues that we're talking about, it's, it's, it, it seems cheap on the surface of it to dig coal out of the ground and burn it. But the true impact on people's health, the state of the city, the transportation mechanisms and networks, et cetera, et cetera, mm. and the subsidies that go around it actually hide the true facts of how expensive those types of things are compared with clean technologies um, mm. and there's more and more studies coming out every day around this subject there is indeed well that's a that's a brief look at plm almost and the stuff around it I, i'm sure we'll come back to do a nice tech spot perhaps on more specifically within engineering and within manufacturing what a plm is and what a plm system is yes um but yeah Good stuff. I think it's time we uh, jumped into our interview. So today on the Atlas podcast, we're joined by Martin Mellis, who is uh, just started as the new Chief Commercial Officer for ATS Global. Hello, Martin. Nice to meet you. Hello. Nice to meet you, too. Fantastic. If you'd like to give us a little of your background and how you got here, that'd be great. Um, yeah, well, my background is uh, I'm Dutch. I live in Amsterdam. Uh, my background is in uh, business economics, and I've done mostly everything in, on the commercial side of organizations, so marketing, business development, sales, sales management, but also on the consultancy side, helping companies grow, accelerate their business and uh, usually in international settings uh, so that's why i feel right at home at ats global which is also very international and uh and now i'm i started two weeks ago and uh basically getting to know everyone mostly through teams as that mm -hmm. is these days right it is that's the modern solution yeah, and it's um. So, how's it feeling after a couple of weeks? I mean, it's uh, always a bit of a head spin, I think, to begin with in any new business. And um, um how are you settling in? Uh, it is. It is a lot of information. Uh, meeting a lot of people. Uh, and you find that there are, you know, of course, there are different um uh, aspects. We are uh, a matrix organization, so. Uh, I'm just getting more layers of information by the day. Uh, I feel that people are very helpful in uh, bringing me up to speed. Uh, and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on, really a lot. So I'm very anxious to dive into everything. But of course, I cannot do that all at once. I have to give it a bit of time to, you know, you can only do that once to really onboard and um uh, get the broader picture and also i'm still very new i still have very much the outside in view which uh which is also uh, for, for many people interesting <laughs> yeah yeah and that's i think that's the nice thing about bringing new people on board is always they what they bring to you as a business uh, you know it's, it's interesting to try and find out and i think that that initial period <clears throat> can sometimes be a little bit too short because 
then they start to get uh, acclimatized into the environment that they're working in and almost that that previous life or previous world um, <laughs> is slightly forgotten about and I've seen that so so often really but yeah we should definitely see more about how what people bring and how we can bring those advantages so I guess a little bit on that I mean what was what's your kind of what, you know going back further what's your what's your original kind of training did you go to a university and study a particular thing what what's the kind of background to where you started on this journey yeah, i studied business economics uh and i did two majors one in marketing and one in organization and uh uh yeah and and from there i i started in management traineeships in marketing and sales. I did mostly the commercial side that has always had my interest because uh, yeah, basically what customers uh, are looking for. So the, the, the bridge between a company and what you deliver to the market is, is one thing, but the other thing is what, is what is needed? Where is it going to? Where do you connect with your customers? How do you explain how your solutions can be beneficial? And um, and the other way around, uh, I've seen over the past 20 years, I've seen that role also evolve, where as uh, some decades ago, it was mostly about uh, relationships and, and, and visiting clients regularly, uh, having a lot of cups of coffee. But nowadays, it's, it's really about knowing and customers know a lot themselves before you even talk to them. So... Uh, you've got way more channels to uh, to maintain and to make sure that that uh, the fit where customers find the information and 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 at the right moment also and and where they where the connect is and that that is an easy connect also and that you can uh, come more from a trusted position that you actually uh, thinking about how you can help your customers. That, that spectrum has always fascinated me and I've mm. worked in those areas um, I, I, for I different reasons. I, I always think when I ask the kind of question about the university, I always think people are going to say, I was a chemist or I did, you know, something. <laughs> <laughs> so many are so often people whose uh, professions is not necessarily what they did in university. And, uh, um, yeah, when you said yes, I did economics and marketing. Okay, that's good. <laughs> well, I started that way, and I'm still there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what do you think? Well, have been some of your kind of big challenges that you've kind of, I guess, look back proudly about what you've achieved, you know, in previous businesses and things like that. What are those challenges that you've overcome? You think? Um. Yeah, the challenge is, is about um, the, the job becoming more uh, data-driven and more uh, professional, more structured, involves more departments within businesses. So bringing all that together is, is, is a challenge in its own and, and it changes a lot as well. So um, when that starts to work, uh, when it's not, um, when, when all people in the organization understand what, what the story is or what, uh, what we bring to the market and, and there's a, a flow in there when that happens, they usually, 
that's that's uh, when I think, okay, we you know we've really uh, achieved something. So those are mo mostly also the uh, projects I've been on or the roles that I was in was was mostly about that. Um, of course, there are some things that you're uh, more proud of, and that is when, of course, you you, you do a large deal and uh, and it works well, and and you know uh, you've turned something um, into yeah, actually doing the business with clients, you know, so mm. going from zero to to having a, a partnership when that works, that and yeah, that that is those are all really precious to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I think it's a, it's, it's an always an interesting thing where people get their, their motivation from and things. And, um, um, you know, I, I, I like that kind of engineering challenge and problem solving aspects of it. And, uh, I, I guess the business side of things has always seemed to me as a, a Necessary but not interesting, but it's uh, <laughs> we've got our passion. So. If it's not there, then it stops somewhere, right? I know. I, know. Exactly. I read a book once, uh, something like it was uh, one of these uh, coffee books. I go 30 steps to setting up a coffee business or something like this, or you know, wake up and smell the coffee, whatever. And so much of that was about. Uh, these businesses opening up these coffee shops going isn't this a great expression of my um creativity and uh you know it shows the personality of who i am and then the businesses crash and they go oh, i wish i'd run the business because <laughs> 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 in the end yeah, you still need to make money uh to be able to do the more uh, uh if you like creative side of any any organization Yes, um, and that's why that kind of blended team, isn't it? I think they call it. The, yeah, the two stage teams need to be in place, really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's good that everyone has got their own focus, right? Yeah, and in the end, it should you know it should all uh, relate. <laughs> yeah. And the, the the analogy or the the analogy that reminded me of what you were saying is like. Oh, we all need to get on the bus together. We all need to be pointing in the same direction. <laughs> yeah. those, those analogies are really simplified versions of chaos. Like that. I mean, it's, <laughs> oh yeah, if it only was as simple as those few words, getting everybody pointing in the right everybody direction. Everybody agrees also that they need to be on the same bus, but things can get lost in translation. Also, and and you know. Um, People can get started with things and 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 uh, not realize that on the other side, people also get started with things, and then then you hope that it'll <laughs> somewhere get together. Um, but I think uh, what I find within uh, ATS Global, people are very customer oriented. So uh, so actually, that that's really really a good thing and and good to find out for me as well. So it's. Uh, yeah, very service oriented and very um, yeah with the customer in mind. So uh, so we're on that bus together. <laughs> Glad to hear it. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess what's the what's exciting you about the future then? What are you you looking forward to? Um, yeah, well, um, we are growing really fast. Uh, that has challenges on its own uh, and uh, we want to continue growing so it's very much about um, 
taking the things that we are good at and that we can make impact with uh, and, and, and delivering those in a, in a larger scale and uh, really uh, growing in a structured way to the opportunities that we have. So it's, it's building the commercial organization around that, that, that has my focus. <clears throat> and uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, where I see things going so that we can maintain that, that growth, but also maintain uh, the quality that we have and, and, uh, and also the, um, yeah, the culture that, that, that is there, which is very important, uh, as well. So combine those two things, uh, uh, together and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's where I, uh, I will be putting my time and energy in. Exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is exciting. So it's uh, great to speak to you, um, and uh, hopefully we'll see where we are in a year, two years, five years, and um, mm -hmm. what kind of influence you've had on the business. Yeah, that'd be exciting. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah thank you for joining us. And yeah, we'll. <laughs> yeah, we. I, I hope we all are. And yeah, we'll. I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again very soon. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. And so, for the tech spot of this Atlas podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about the Internet of Things, the IoT. Yes, and it's, um, if you like, industrial Internet of Things variant, um, if you mm. want to call it in that way. So, the yeah, I IoT. It's, I, it is something I had heard of the Internet of Things, or I was aware of the Internet of Things before working uh, in this industry. But the IIoT, Industrial Internet of Things, is a new but yeah logical progression for that idea um and i know you having written a short article about it this week found some pretty interesting history stuff that you wanted to get into so yeah because I, I find my way i find whenever i look at these things is you, you want to dive into a little bit about how it came about because mm -hmm. these new technologies don't just appear out of anywhere they especially as we said about the labels that they get after a while um there has to be a certain amount of existing energy within the market for for a term to appear really um, yeah. and so we always assume the internet of things uh is is something that is all, all you know new and shiny and gets a part of but it's actually got quite a long history mm. which goes back to um here 1969 mm. um when when there was a kind of a, a, a precursor to the internet where people were starting to play around with that kind of concepts so this is where these things always align so when we talk about the internet the internet is you know computers being able to talk to one computer to another computer to another mm -hmm. and then on that became the world wide web so once computers can talk to each other then we want to be able to, you know, view information. And at the mm -hmm. time, we were very used to documentate documents and things like that. So really, the World Wide Web um, was a set of web pages, if you like, that um, obviously famously through CERN, um, yeah. et cetera, had then uh, we created the World Wide Web um, through Tim Berners-Lee Wood. Um, so 
you know, that aspect of it has to be there really for the internet of things to occur. So once those the early days of the internet, people were already looking at how they could connect things to the internet, not just web pages. Mm -hmm. um, and there's all kinds of things about connecting vending machines to the internet. Uh, apparently, um, uh, there's a famous um, first toaster to be controlled by the internet by a guy <laughs> called John, John Rumkey. Um, you know, the first internet was, toaster. Yeah. That first was back, of many. <laughs> that was back in 1990. You're thinking a dial-up internet toaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really, once again, as we keep coming back to the turn of the century mm. um, is really where the concept of and the term, the Internet of Things, came around by um, Kevin Ashton from the MIT. MIT and then, center of a lot of these things, yeah. yeah. But it took until 2007 when the phones come around um, the, and that kind of Internet technology through uh, 3G, 4G, all this type of thing. And then the first the first conference, international conference in IoT was 2008. <clears throat> okay, so what's that to do with industrial Internet of Things? Well, that's the point, really. Um, this Internet of Things didn't grow from an industrial setting. It's grown up through the um, open setting of the Internet, the, uh, if you like, the public domain, um, some of those kind of commercial goods it, that, that are produced necessarily by manufacturing. But manufacturing itself and the industry itself really didn't start looking at these types of technologies until the fourth industrial revolution and industry 4.0 specifically started mm. to look for technologies that they could adopt. Um, and I think I've used this phrase before that you know, the, fourth, the fourth industrial revolution, the uh, industry 4.0 is really the adoption of Internet technologies into an industrial domain. Yeah. Um, so the IoT is an Internet technology that has developed through the advances of chip designs, um, lower power devices, uh, conductivity through telco um, communications, lower lower powered um, um, uh, communication protocols, and all these types of things have all developed outside of manufacturing and industry. And yet, we need these kind of technologies and these approaches to be able to modernise what we do within industrial setting. And that's when um, the industrial Internet of Things and various consortiums that were built around it and various different reference architectures were built around that kind of concept of how could we adopt IoT into an industrial setting. Mm -hmm. And some of those challenges are this, the industrial setting is really complicated. Um, you can kind of look at the factory of the future uh, uh, aspects where we're looking at autonomous factories where machines are collaborating with the smart products that they're making they're collaborating with the um, material delivery systems and the warehouse systems and everything is a kind of autonomous agent within those facilities self-organizing we're nowhere near that at the moment because the technologies that based in factories today as we talked about before programmable logic controllers scada systems all these types of things they were never designed 
with that kind of level of scalability or flexibility or communications um, from day one. Therefore, those two worlds, you know, and we can throw 5G into that in the new world, are, are really what would, what's trying to happen when we talk about the industrial internet of things. Mm. And they started with a set of reference architectures, really. How do we combine those two worlds? Um, and uh, how do we make the most of it? Um, and, and that's why this is really a long journey. It's quite easy in the Internet of Things to put some nice little temperature sensors um, or humidity sensors or looking at river heights or whatever it is and kind of um, sensorize the world. Uh, but in an industrial setting, we're not just sensing things, we're, we're creating actuators um, and we're creating systems of systems. Um, so one machine in a factory that might have 2,000 machines in itself has 10,000 sensors and actuators built within it. Mm. And that's that kind of level of complexity that the industrial Internet of Things is trying to manage. So to allow for us to have that level of complexity, we really need things like um, edge computing. Um, and what I mean by that is we've got to take all that information that we're gathering from those sensors and we've got to apply those sensors to these digital twin models of the actual physical representation of that, that machine. Right. Um, and that digital twin can live in the cloud if we have very low latency communications, which is mm -hmm. kind of where the 5G stuff comes in. But if you want that kind of uh, autonomous action, then that has to live with the device itself. Um, and that means that each, each thing within that network needs to have basically this, this brain within it that knows how to talk to other things within the network. Um, uh, as well as potentially existing legacy systems that don't know how to talk its language. Um, and that's that kind of level of complexity that, that is, if you like, scales, in my mind, more complex than the Internet of Things. I think at some level that's arguable because when you start to talk about smart cities and all that type of thing, there's obviously a level of huge interconnected com complexity there. Um, but then we're talking about the similar kind of challenge, but this time you're looking to look at those patterns and networks um, between how traffic lights compare with the flashing lights on an ambulance and the availability in a hospital and the river height because we got a flood. You know, those mm -hmm. type of interconnecting parts would be more done at the uh, cloud level, where in an industrial setting we're really looking for that kind of autonomous area. Um, but, you know, we also have that autonomous um, uh, vehicle type kind of discussion as well. So, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of uh, information there to manage and to coordinate aspects. And that's the main point, really, is we need a complicated thing domain model. Um, it's not good enough that the domain models we have for sensors um, we can't scale those up to show how a domain model for a machine that has thousands of sensors and actuators associated to it. Um, yeah. And as we discussed earlier, that thing then has a life cycle. Um, 
So all of those aspects has to be built more into this uh, complicated domain model mm. for those resources that we're going to use within an industrial setting. I think, yeah, it's the thing that is most fascinating to me is, as you've touched on it there, but these machines, obviously they progress over time and they develop as new technology comes out, but the, they're producing Internet of Things devices, but they're too complex to take part in the Internet of Things, if you yeah. know what I mean. So, yeah, you're, you're getting ever and ever smarter, dare I say it, toasters, uh, but the thing that's making your Internet toaster remains sort of on a level until you take that big leap. And I, t I know we touch on it a lot mm. in mm. our other communications, but yeah, I guess there's a, a big part of technical debt and things like that, that you're mm. sort of stuck with the fact that you have to jump off a cliff and take the big leap so that you can then, uh, yeah, make use of essentially the new world, mm. the, new, the new approach to things, talking to things and just, yeah, the quantum shift that that brings. And that's where we talk about that hybrid cloud, edge compute type stuff, um, because that's still relatively new stuff. I mean, it's mm -hmm. possible. I mean, we're doing it on the uh, on several of the innovation projects already. Um, but like you said, those sensors and actuators are built in the machine then would need to plug into this new edge compute capability, mm -hmm. not not into the uh, traditional control system world. Um, and then it would have to learn how to speak to other, you know, other other equipment. And you could get to a situation that the factory itself could reassemble itself to produce whatever new thing that it needed to do. Mm. Um, you know, so it could you could have machines maintaining and changing machines uh with it within that kind of concept but um yeah we're we're a long way from that because of the legacy of the you know factories do change but they change in a very ad hoc way mm. um and for those then to change in that kind of dramatic nature that we're talking about well even brand new greenfield sites today don't have that level of um vision or technology built within them they're still pretty much quite built on um, old technologies so yeah the only way we can kind of break these things are on these innovation projects where we are pushing the boundaries of that but that's not to say we can't have an interim phase where we're bridging that gap between um, the technologies of the machine today and putting that kind of edge compute capability still within that machine but doing um, more more information with it. And what I mean by that is the uh, innovation projects we're working on are things like World Zero, where we're taking um, the information from the machine, comparing it to a model that has been trained on what are good and bad worlds, and mm. then changing the parameters of the machine in a, in a more... Um, you know, a quick feedback way. So that algorithm can live outside of the actual machine itself in the edge compute. And then all, over time, more and more of that model will be built up. Um, so you don't have to go for the kind of big bang, replace everything this way. You can just put that infrastructure in place, find out that problem you're looking to solve. And in this case, it's, you know, zero world of defects and then train the model up um, 
using IoT, industrial IoT approaches to see if you can um, improve the quality of what you're, whatever thing you're doing. Mm. Exciting stuff. And again, we've done a, a top level view, but there's so many bits in there that I want to come back and do an entire section on in its own. Well, that's it. We didn't talk about blockchain. Well, we talked a bit about edge compute. We didn't talk about the use of blockchain within that. All right. We're a little bit about AI. Um, but yeah, there's a whole whole raft of things there. And um, especially when we look to self-drive vehicles as well, you kind of, you, you, that's what I'm saying. You kind of got self self-drive machinery in a, in, mm. a, in a factory. Um, so what does that mean? Fascinating. Well, we will come back for sure. Um, but I think looking at the time, that's about it for another Atlas podcast. Uh, thank you, as always, Martin. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Alex. Um, yeah, we'll always enjoy a bit of a chat. Yeah. Long may they continue. Well, they have to, so I can learn all of these things that we're bringing up. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to um, share and chat around what we're doing. But, yeah, we'd want to try and get a few more um, different different guests from different areas and things like that. So, yeah, got some exciting things coming like, or planned for the future of the podcast. So looking forward to getting involved more and more. Absolutely. Uh, as always, I have a quote to finish on. I've gone for Henry Ford this time, oft quoted, uh, and his this week is, a market is never saturated with a good product, but it is very quickly saturated with a bad one. <laughs> so a bit of a thinker there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can comment on that. <laughs> good stuff. All right, thanks, Martin. I All will right. see you next week. Yes. Bye, Alex. Bye-bye. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.